Hi, and welcome to Clerkship Ready Pediatrics, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in pediatrics. I'm Dr. Lisa Hainstock, and I am an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Pediatric Hospitalist at the University of Virginia Children's Hospital. Today, we will be reviewing fluids and electrolytes. This podcast is focused on helping you feel prepared to order fluids and replace electrolytes on the patients you are taking care of on the inpatient pediatric floor. While this may seem like a very dry topic, pun intended, stay with me and I will make this as practical and useful for you as possible. During your pediatric rotation, you will quickly realize that we take care of a varied group of patients, both in size and age, and then of course you must consider their diagnoses. The vast majority of our hospitalized patients require supplementation with IV fluid and or electrolytes during their hospitalization. So it is absolutely paramount that you are cognizant of the fact that IV fluid, while it may seem fairly trivial and easy to order, should be absolutely considered a medication. For that reason, you need to be thoughtful as to how to place these orders in each clinical context. It is not a one-size-fits-all. Let's start by reviewing some basic considerations that will be important for you to think about as you are ordering the fluids for your patient. Your patient's fluid needs will be based on maintenance fluid needs, your patient's current fluid deficit, and predicted ongoing losses. Let's start with maintenance fluid needs. Maintenance fluids contain three components, water, electrolytes such as sodium, potassium, and chloride, and glucose. The goals of maintenance IV fluid are to prevent dehydration, prevent electrolyte disorders, and prevent ketoacidosis. Maintenance IV fluids do not provide adequate calories for proteins, fat, minerals, or vitamins. So if you feel that your patient has a caloric insufficiency, you should consider alternative methods for nutritional rehabilitation. The holiday Seeger method is a well-known calculation to help guide your initial maintenance need for parenteral fluid therapy. This method was actually published way back in 1957 and is still utilized widely today. Many people will reference this as the 4 one rule. Essentially, for the first 10 kilograms of your patient's body weight, you will order 4 milliliters per kilogram per hour of your fluid maintenance rate. For the next 10 kilograms of your patient's body weight, you will add an additional 2 milliliters per kilogram per hour. For each additional kilogram over 20 kilograms, you will add 1 milliliter per kilogram per hour to the patient's fluid rate. Take a moment to calculate what the fluid rate would be for a 35-kilogram child. So, for a 35-kilogram child, the first 10 kilograms would equal 40 milliliters per hour, the next 10 kilograms would add 20 milliliters per hour, and the final 15 kilograms would add an additional 15 milliliters per hour, totaling 75 milliliters per hour. Note that children over 65 kilograms do not need the same incremental dose and should cap at about two and a half liters per day or about 100 milliliters per hour. It is incredibly important to remember that this calculation includes several assumptions about maintenance fluid. It assumes average insensible losses, average energy expenditure and metabolism, average urinary losses, no additional losses from any other site, and normal renal function. You can imagine why following this formula without any flexibility could be problematic. The vast majority, if not all, of our patients do not fit into any of these average categories. Okay, let's pretend you're seeing a patient in the emergency department. You're preparing to order their maintenance fluids. There are two important age groups to remember, 
the patient under 28 days and the patient 28 days to 18 years of life. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends different maintenance fluids for each of these patient populations. For patients under 28 days, the recommendation is to use D5 half normal saline. And for patients 28 days and older, the recommended fluid is D5 normal saline. The D refers to the dextrose component or the glucose or sugar, again, so that your patient does not become hypoglycemic. D5 is 5% dextrose and is the standard glucose concentration for maintenance fluids. The decision to add potassium can be made based on whether you think your patient is at risk for hyperkalemia or has renal insufficiency. If your patient is not at risk for hyperkalemia or high potassium, you can add 20 milliequivalents per liter of potassium chloride to your patient's fluid orders. Stepping back for a moment, before you even order maintenance fluids, it is a good idea to consider whether your patient is dehydrated, is at risk for ongoing losses, or has concern for sepsis or hypovolemic shock. Noting, of course, that the last two of those scenarios are the most concerning. In these scenarios, it is a good idea to consider ordering a fluid bolus before you initiate maintenance fluids. <coughs> a fluid bolus is different than maintenance fluid in that it is given over a shorter period of time, typically 10 to 15 minutes. It is meant to quickly replete their fluid deficit. The next point is also very, very important. You must always bolus with isotonic fluids. Never ever bolus with a hypotonic fluid such as half normal saline or quarter normal saline. You certainly do not want to induce hyponatremia iatrogenically and potentially make your patient much sicker. The two options for a fluid bolus are normal saline and lactated ringers. Lactated ringers has a slightly different composition than normal saline. While normal saline contains just sodium and chloride, lactated ringers contains lactate, which can serve as a buffer for your patients with acidosis. It also includes a lower concentration of chloride than normal saline and includes a small amount of potassium. We will talk more about the potential use of lactated ringers again in a bit, but in general, your fluid bolus should be 20 milliliters per kilogram. The exception to this is a patient who might have cardiac insufficiency, in which case you would use a smaller bolus of 10 milliliters per kilogram. Always remember to reassess your patient after each bolus. If you feel your patient is still dehydrated, you should absolutely consider ordering an additional one or two boluses of 20 milliliters per kilogram. Again, reassessing after each bolus. Back to lactated ringers. You can also use lactated ringers as maintenance fluid rather than D5 normal saline. One of the scenarios that I love to use lactated ringers for maintenance fluid is for the patient with diarrhea. As you remember, patients with diarrhea often have a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis with a low bicarbonate. Sometimes clinicians will order fluids with sodium chloride for these patients, including multiple fluid boluses with sodium chloride. What can start to happen is that when they receive too much chloride, their kidneys see that and start losing bicarbonate. So then on morning rounds, when you're looking at their basic metabolic panel or BMP, you might feel confused as to why you did such a great job hydrating your patient, but now their bicarbonate level has actually dropped from 12 to 6, and their chloride level has increased from 103 to 117. This is more than likely due to an abundance of fluids with normal saline, which contains more chloride. In these instances, I prefer to use D5 with lactated ringers. All right, let's pause to learn some fun facts about how lactated ringers got its name. 
The solution was named after a British clinician, physiologist, and pharmacologist named Sidney Ringer. He was born back in 1835 in Norwich, England, and he's probably most famous for his work creating the solution, Ringer's Lactate or Lactated Ringer's. He was able to demonstrate, after much trial and error, that this solution would enable a beating frog's heart, mind you, outside of its body, to sustain muscle contractions for the longest period of time. Not an experiment I would necessarily want to be involved in, but thank you, Sydney Ringer, for your research. Okay, the next thing I want to briefly touch on is the role of antidiuretic in the hospitalized patient. As you may recall, this hormone is responsible for increasing the reabsorption of water into the circulation from filtrate in the kidney tubules. There is an entity called the Syndrome of Inappropriate Antidiuretic Hormone, or SIADH, which can result in hyponatremia. I mention this because almost every single one of our children who is hospitalized is at risk for SIADH. The list of patients at risk includes those with pulmonary disease, such as pneumonia, central nervous system disturbances, such as meningitis, malignancies, medications such as opiates and some anti-epileptics, postoperatively, and even just pain and stress. From this list, you can see why nearly every single one of our patients is at risk for SIADH. This is yet another reason why it's really important for you to consider your patient's need for IV fluids every single day, again, considering it to be a medication. Next, we can talk about what observations you can make to determine your patient's level of dehydration. And after that, we'll walk through a few practical cases. The very first thing you should be assessing when you walk into the room is your patient's mental status. Is the patient awake and playful? Or are they a wet noodle, as I like to say, lying there without much activity? Then I would do a careful physical exam, assessing the patient's mucous membranes, skin turgor, pulse rate and quality, capillary refill, and presence or absence of tears. A few other things that you can ask to ascertain your patient's level of dehydration is asking caregivers about urinary output. You can simply ask, how many wet diapers have you changed today? Or how many times have your child, has your child used the bathroom? And one that clinicians very often forget, ask parents for a baseline weight. Uh, being a parent myself, I can tell you that most parents absolutely can tell you their child's weight within a very small margin. If your patient is between 3 and 5% down from baseline weight, that would likely be considered mild dehydration. If your patient is 10 to 15% down from baseline weight, I would consider that to be severe dehydration. Of course, all of the other physical exam findings should be considered as you assess whether your patient is mildly, moderately, or severely dehydrated. I do want to add a quick note about um, skin turgor. In your patients with severe hypernatremia, so increased sodium levels, you can be fooled by how well their skin turgor looks. This is because the water is preferentially entering the intravascular space, making your patient's capillary refill and overall skin turgor and appearance look much better than the labs later reveal. Let's pivot for the next several minutes and go through some case scenarios involving common ab electrolyte abnormalities you may encounter during your rotation. The first is a 12-year-old who is hospitalized with influenza. You're called with a critical value. The nurse states your patient's potassium level is 7.7. .7. What are your next steps? Think about that for a moment. The, the obvious th first thing you should do is go to the bedside and assess your patient. What you should not do is assume the patient's potassium is hemolyzed, meaning that the red cells have been lysed and have released some intracellular contents, including potassium. 
You should not ignore it or just recheck it and go on with your day. You should head to the bedside and immediately put the child on the monitor and order an EKG. Now think about what you might see on the EKG if your patient is hyperkalemic. Findings might include peaked T waves, a long PR interval, a wide QRS, or a depressed ST segment. So let's pretend you're at the bedside and you are seeing an EKG with these findings. What are you going to do next? Well, first of all, you should think about your patient's medications and fluids. Eliminate all exogenous potassium from your patient's fluids and be sure to hold any potassium-sparing medications that they are receiving, such as spironolactone or ACE inhibitors such as lisinopril or enalapril. Then you have a few options. The most common of these uh, options is to administer calcium gluconate. The dose of calcium gluconate is 100 mils per kilogram over three to five minutes. Now, I don't expect you to remember the dose, but you should be able to remember the medication. Also know that you can repeat this dose in 10 minutes if your EKG fails to normalize. During this time, you should also be checking serial potassium levels. Another option to manage hyperkalemia is to give insulin with dextrose 25 or D25. This is a bit trickier as it involves monitoring blood glucose levels. So in my practice, I typically give calcium gluconate. There is an option also to give sodium bicarbonate IV over 5 to 10 minutes instead of calcium gluconate. This might be a helpful alternative if your patient is also acidotic. Let's think about the scenario where this patient with the potassium of 7.7 does not have an IV. Is there anything or any medication you can think of that might be acceptable to help with this hyperkalemia? Here, albuterol might be helpful. It is typically very accessible and will help drive the potassium intracellularly, which brings up the next point. All of the aforementioned medications do not decrease the body's total um, potassium level. They merely drive the potassium intracellularly. So you still need to address the excess potassium. In this instance, I prefer utilizing loop diuretics such as furosemide. The dose is one milligram per kilogram. You could also consider a cation exchange resin, such as sodium polystyrene sulfonate, which you may better know is kaxalate. However, this is contraindicated in infants and any child who has gut motility issues and can be trickier to know when or when, when it should be used and when it should be avoided. I want to share a mnemonic, which may be helpful for you to remember how to address hyperkalemia. It is C, big, K, drop. C as in the letter C, the word big, K as in the letter K, and then the word drop. The C is for calcium gluconate. The B is for bicarbonate. The I and G are for insulin and glucose, and the K is for kaxalate, and the drop is for dialysis. Noting that dialysis is reserved for patients with renal insufficiency who do not respond to medical management. Another question that also often comes up, is there a level at which I should be more concerned about hyperkalemia and its effects on the cardiac membrane? Should I be worried if I get called with a 5.7 or a 6? The answer is yes. In general, potassium levels less than 7 will not be associated with adverse events. However, if your child's potassium is between 6 and 7 and they are at risk for a continued rise of potassium, such as rhabdomyolysis or tumor lysis syndrome, I would still be on high alert for sequelae from hyperkalemia. Okay, next case. A parent calls you concerned that his child recently started eating power cords. 
What do you tell him? Depending on the current situation at home, you may need to ground him until he conduct himself appropriately. <laughs> okay. I laugh at myself more than anybody else laughs at me, but that's okay. All right. Next case for real now. You are admitting a two-year-old with severe malnutrition and failure to thrive whom you suspect is suffering from medical neglect. He appears malnourished, but is very well hydrated. As you begin the process of providing nutrition, you are astutely checking labs. Think about what specific lab or abnormalities you will be looking for. I want you to think about what happens when you are feeding a child who has not received nutrition and what you feel is it quite a long time. Here, you should be thinking about your patient's risk for refeeding syndrome. This syndrome causes electrolyte and fluid shifts after the reintroduction of nutrition in malnourished patients. These fluid shifts may result in low potassium, low phosphate, and low magnesium. The mechanism by which this occurs is that when insulin is released, these electrolytes move intracellularly, thus decreasing your intravascular concentrations of each. In addition, your patient will start making more ATP, which also utilizes greater amounts of phosphate and results in a risk of hypophosphatemia. In addition, when insulin is released, it automatically causes fluid retention. You can imagine why this might be problematic in a patient with a weakened cardiac muscle due to prolonged malnutrition. A greater amount of afterload to pump against could cause real problems with your patient's heart function. Pediatric patients at highest risk for refeeding syndrome include those who have had prolonged periods with nothing to eat, considered greater than five days, patients with severe anorexia nervosa, and malnourishment due to chronic disease such as malignancy. Your patient will be at the highest risk for refeeding syndrome during that first three to five days that you are introducing nutrition. During this time, it's important that you provide slow reintroduction of nutrition with close monitoring of the aforementioned electrolytes. Let's walk through another scenario that you might encounter in a patient with concern for refeeding syndrome. You've been checking labs on the two-year-old mentioned a few minutes ago. On day four of admission, the potassium is noted to be 2.9. What do you want to do? Recheck and follow, replace orally, or replace with an IV formulation. Also consider what medication you would order as a replacement. In this scenario, provided that the phosphate is still within a normal range, I would order potassium chloride since I know that this level is already low and is likely to drop further as the risk for feeding syndrome continues. If this was a patient who was otherwise looking well and I did not have concerns for continued losses, I would feel actually comfortable watching the potassium levels. I typically reserve IV replacement for potassium levels less than 2.5, uh, especially if they are at risk for ongoing losses or have other electrolyte abnormalities such as magnesium or calcium, which might affect cardiac conduction. If your patient's phosphorus level was also low, you could consider it, consider using a medication called FOSNAC. You can discuss that medication more closely with the pharmacist to determine if that is the right um, electrolyte replacement for your patient. Before we close, I want to share some additional clinical pearls that will be helpful during your time on the inpatient pediatric service. So there is an association between calcium and albumin. More specifically, if your patient's albumin is low, the serum calcium will also be affected. This occurs because calcium is bound to albumin, which will then lower the measure level, even though the physiologically important portion, the ionized calcium, is often normal. You can quickly estimate the actual calcium level 
by multiplying 0.8 times your patient's albumin and then adding that to their measured calcium. So if your patient's albumin is 2 and the calcium level is 7, you take 2 times that 0.8, which equals 1.6. You then add that 1.6 to their serum calcium, which I mentioned is 7, and you get 8.6. Now remember, this is just an estimate. If you want a more accurate level, you could check in ionized calcium. There is also an association between potassium and serum pH. If your patient is acidotic, the potassium will measure high as it moves extracellularly. Conversely, if your patient is alkalotic, the potassium will measure low as it moves intracellularly. So today we talked a lot about fluid choice, maintenance fluids, and managing dehydration. We also reviewed a few high-yield cases that should be helpful as you start your clerkship. So when your attending asks you how you want to manage dehydration or hypokalemia, you will be ready to confidently state your plan. Thank you for listening to Clerkship Ready Pediatrics. Hope you found today's podcast to be helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below and rate the podcast.